Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about the instructions that God gave the Israelites on how to build the temple. And then we go on from there, and we talk about how that affects Catholic Church architecture. So without further ado, episode 21 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Hey, uh, I was uh, in the library the other day, and I was reading this really good book. Um, it was called... Catholic oh, Church Architecture yeah. and the Spirit. No, no, that's what it was. Oh. It was a... Uh, I, I got really confused because I thought it was a Gordini book. I mean, uh, 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 a Ratzinger book. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was this uh, book about architecture, and it was written by... Um, oh, what is it? Some schmo. Uh, d- some uh, hack. Some guy. He spells his name wrong. It's weird. Um, Dennis <laughs> McNamara. Yeah, some he, Dennis is with one N, so it's kind of weird. It's the real uh, way. But anyway, if you only found we it, could have him come and talk about architecture. That'd be great. I know. You, I hear. I he wonder had, what he'd tell us. He'd fly him in. He's like, it's oh, well, look who's here! It's Hello? it's Doctor McNamara. <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> well, you are on a podcast, sir. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> well, that's a first. All right. Uh, wow. <laughs> ding ding ding. Church architecture. Yes. You wrote the book on it. I did write a book on that, yes. So let's just go word for word, chapter by chapter. Well, if there's something I want people to know beyond anything else. Yeah, give me the elevator pitch. It is. The church building is a theological thing that has an importance in the life of Christians and in the, the rite itself. It's not just a neutral background where all the activity happens in the inside. It is a thing that is sacramentally representational of our own heavenly future. And it's something we encounter. We see it from a distance. We come inside of it. We walk around in it. We touch it. It should have layers and layers and layers of meaning representing the place where we exist in our own heavenly future, which is ultimately inside the mystical body or inside the heart of Christ. But the church building is an image of Christ, and it's the image of right relationship with God between humanity and God, which is Christ itself. So we said a few weeks ago, the altar is Christ, but the church building is Christ as well. Sounds a little funny, except that they speak of the temple of his body, and the New Testament speaks of um, the church as, you know, the people of the church being God's building and their living stones. It's kind of weird to compare someone to a rock, you know, it's not usually very flattering. You, know, you remind me of a rock, <laughs> but it's a rock that's been shaped and fitted and assembled just like the parts of a body. If you had, a, you know, a pile of body parts lying around and a bunch of fingers and toes. Oh, that's such a weird image. Why do you I have know, to say that? Because that... You blame it on the New Testament because they compare the body to a building. You have to put the feet where the feet go and the toes where the toes go and the hands where the hands go. And if you assemble them properly, then you have an image of a body. And if you assemble all the parts of a church building, right, then you have a church building. It's a theological thing. It has theological importance. And it's not just a mood setter. And it's not just a place for nostalgia about old things or the place to be cutting edge about modern things. Says you. Says yeah. me. What? Are you I just making this up? You, yeah, that's well, my, you're, Okay, that's you're not my, making this up. I'm not that's making how, this up. That's my question is how do we know that? Well, this is the, the, the inherited tradition, the scriptural references, the way theologians have figured it out over the years. 
And basically, you know, the, the Old Testament prophets, especially people like Isaiah, they talk about the time when the world will be restored. So Adam and Eve are happy with God. Right? There's no church building in the Garden of Eden because they don't need it. The place of God and humanity living happily in a delightful place is that garden. And after the fall, there's a sort of break or a, a deformation of this relationship. And so the, a lot of the prophets are saying, when will the end be like the beginning again? When will the uh, end of the world be like the beginning of the world, but even better? And so they're waiting for the Messiah, and they're, they have all these prefigurements, especially in some of the architectural things that God gives. You know, the Temple of Solomon wasn't just made up by Solomon. Moses had this vision on the, uh, on the mountain of this heavenly arrangement of things, and he built the tabernacle of Moses, which is this kind of portable temple-like tent that they carry around when the Israelites are on the move all the time. And then finally, when they settle in Jerusalem... All right, you're going too fast. Can you yeah, tell us more? What, yeah. Oh, come on. What did this... Uh, so he has this vision, and God tells him what yeah, this... How many uh, cubits are involved is what I yeah, want to yeah. know. <laughs> and what is a cubit anyway? cubit is the length of a forearm, particularly the king's forearm. So okay, it's, now it's we're getting somewhere. Slippery. Right, but what did this... So like before the temple was built, when they're still uh, in the desert, I mean, what did this uh, uh, tent of meeting... Is that also what it's called? Mm-hmm. The tent of, right. What did this look like? If well, you were to draw this out, draw some It was kind picture. of like a long shoebox-shaped building uh, with tent walls. And then there was a, a little room in the back that was the Holy of Holies. That's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was God's throne. The VIP room. Very much the VIP. The most V of all the Ps <laughs> was in, on the throne. That's uh, God's <laughs> very own uh, presence with his people, Israel. And the veil was this other, you know, very important curtain that separated that room from the bigger room out called the holy place which we learned is terrible it is terrible and it's meant to be torn from the very beginning yeah so the veil uh separated heaven and earth in a sense but also revealed uh relationship between heaven and earth they would put things on the veil like uh, the stars and the cosmos and images of angels so they were representing heaven but veiling it at the same time that's what all sacraments so there's instructions even about what these walls and veils and tents were supposed to be absolutely wow i didn't even know how specific this guy the clasps were made of silver or gold or bronze the uh, the veil was made of four different kinds of fabric three different colors of wool plus linen there's blue and red and then the linen was sort of linen colored and then purple and each one of those colors represented something. Uh, Alec, um, Clement of Alexandria said the red was the, s- the stars or the sky, the burning fire. The blue was the sky. Then the purple was the red blood of fish in the sea. And then the linen was the earth. So the veil represented all of creation because it brought together the sea, the stars, the sky, and the earth. And those things separated heaven and earth, just like all of creation reveals God now in a certain way, but it also conceals God as well. What else was in there besides the, the veils and the walls? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, which was God's throne, and then out in the bigger... Oh, hang on. What did that look like? Oh, it was a golden box with two angels uh, on each side. It was sort you of like presume a, we know all this stuff. Were there yeah. cubits involved in that? I'm sure there were, yeah. Okay. There was, but there was, was instru- real strict instructions as well about right. what the art was Right, make it this big, like. and it had to be made of acacia wood, and inside of it were some of the manna from the time there was lights in the desert, and also the fragments of the Ten Commandments. So you had the bread, you had the law... And um, so it's sort of carrying around all these images of the presence of God. And then God's presence was on the top. Just you said fragments of the commandments? Is that because the, somebody broke all Ten Commandments? But <laughs> They broke both tablets of all Ten Commandments. Well, the Israelites did that later, yeah, or earlier, the golden calf. And, uh, and then the high priest would bring the blood of bulls and goats in there one time a year in the Feast of Atonement. 
And then back out in the larger room, there was the altar of incense. There was also the bread of presence, these 12 breads that were brought into the presence of God. And they thought bread would then carry this presence of God out into the world. And, huh. and this is still that, in the tent. This that is sounds this very is still in the tent. It was basically the same ritual that they used later, but this was all in the pick it up and move it. You know, because the Israelites were always, you know, getting conquered or battling their rivals. And when God was with them, they defeated their enemies. That was so this God present in fire or smoke or in this cloud. We speak of a cloud of witnesses. You know, that's an image of God. And uh, when God left the temple, you know, it's like Elvis has left the building. When God <laughs> left the temple, the, the Israelites got overrun. When their right worship when, went to not right worship, uh, the temple got destroyed. So God's presence was always very, very, very important. And it had to be localized somewhere. In that sense, it was localized in the Holy of Holies of the tent. Okay, so finally they get to the promised land, and what do they not? They replace the uh, the tent, the movable tent, with with, uh, the, with the temple. Right, and the temple becomes an actual kind of permanent stone building. It was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, and its uh, perfection of cut stone and gold and all the arts that went with it and the ritual. Same, as well. but same parts to the temple as what were prescribed, right? Right. It was a permanent, making permanent that which was already sort of temporary and movable. Okay. And, and there were a number of temples, right? Well, originally there were, and then eventually they kind of got limited to the one temple in... Oh, uh, no, what I mean was there was a first temple and it got destroyed. Then oh, yeah, the actual temple. temple. The, well, the question is, are there two temples or three temples? But the first temple of Solomon was destroyed. That was the Shirley Temple. The Shirley Temple, yes. <laughs> and then the second one... Uh, was destroyed again um, by, you know, there's all these invasions and destruction of the temple. Um, and then the third temple is the, sometimes called the third temple. It's the one that Herod rebuilt. So it depends what you think. Some people say that was really the second temple and it was rebuilt uh, by Herod. And then some people call that the third temple. But there's some politics around that because the Jewish tradition was that the third temple would be the, when the Messiah comes. And so if you don't believe the Messiah has come, you don't want to say that there's a third temple. So you just call it the second temple. The, so when they speak huh. of Christ in the New Testament, they talk about wow. second, second temple Judaism. That's really the temple that Herod built in the time of Christ. That is fascinating to me. Wow. Excellent. Here's my little, I, I hope, an accurate contribution to this, uh, although it's not mine, of course. I'll be but, the judge uh, of that. Yeah, Let's we'll see. see. Uh, you know, it's Sinai when um, uh, God gives the commandment. There's this pattern that establishes itself there where God calls the people together, calls them out. And this is, this is called the ecclesia, the calling out, which is the church. And the second thing is God has something to say to the people. So there's this reading of the scriptures. Uh, the third thing is that the people give their assent to all of this that God has said. Amen, amen, all that the Lord has said we shall heed and do. And then lastly, there's the sacrifice that uh, kind of seals this uh, covenant that God and the people have made. And this paradigm of God calling the people together to hear his word, people give their assent, and sealing it with a sacrifice is maybe something that we can recognize today, is that in our ecclesia, our ecclesial communities, begins with the people being called together. We listen to the word of God. In the creed, we give our assent, and then we ratify this new covenant with the sacrifice of the lamb, with the Eucharist. And so what we do in the church today happened all the way back on Sinai. And in uh, the literature that I've read, as they said, each time the temple was uh, either inaugurated or rediscovered or re-sanctified, uh, uh, it's this same sort of pattern happened. When the chosen people come back from uh, the Babylonian captivity and they find the scrolls, there's this uh, reading where I think it's, who is it, um, Ezekiel? He, they, they find the scroll that had been missing, 
this might be wrong, uh, about Ezekiel. And so he calls the people together and he reads from the scroll from sun up to sundown and all the people, uh, they weep and they raise their hands and they say, amen, amen. But the sacrifice, uh, because the temple is still destroyed, there's no sacrifice. It won't be until Christ comes that this definitive sacrifice completes the old temple and this sort of pattern of worship and reestablishes the new temple and the new worship. Does that help at all? We'll have, well, to, we'll have to fact check that. <laughs> well, you know, from you the had point one of, contribution, Chris, and we don't even know if it's real. <laughs> sit on my hands from here. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, from the point of view of what we're you know talking about church architecture, the, what the Old Testament teaches us is that the building, the temple, is a symbolic building. I mean, a temple in any uh, religious tradition was to to go into a temple was to leave time and to leave space. So you went to a mythical time and space. And if you look at the Temple of Solomon, that, that big room wasn't just a big room. Uh, it was covered in cedar panels. It was carved with uh, palm trees and flowers and roses. And they talked about vegetables uh, so that it was the new garden. So the priests went into the, the architectural rendition of the new garden. And then the veil separated that room from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the image of heaven. It's where God was seated enthroned in his, in his majesty. And then the veil separated those two things. So, of course, what happens to the veil when Christ dies on the cross? It is torn. It's torn, it's torn from top to bottom so that heaven and earth are now kind of permeable where they were blocked before. Well, semi-permeable. Veil. Well, in a way, yeah. Just like a lipid bilayer in your cells, but... Well, it's, not, it's actually that. not a bad analogy because some things get through and some things don't. But the idea is that the, the high priest would step from earth into heaven once a year at the Feast of Atonement and then bring the blood of bulls and then the blood became the bearer of, of God's presence and so he would come sprinkle it on the people or the bread as we talked about this bread of presence or they sometimes called it the face bread because it was brought to the face of God sort of how Moses saw God face to face and so blood and bread become the bearer of divinity to be distributed to the people by the priests and so this becomes the pattern that the Eucharist fulfills but yeah, God couldn't think of two new things for the Mass. He just had to stick with what was already there. Well, it took you know, 10,000 years of preparation for people to finally get it through their thick heads, you know, fulfilled the types. 10,000 years of you know, knowing what to look for, so mm-hmm. finally, finally they got it. But every stone in the temple was uh, quarried by a priest. So um, they, they consecrated 10,000 priests, excuse me, 1,000 priests to go to the quarries and dig up the stones to make the temple. And it was considered... There's a plug for vocation. Well, right? that's right. I don't know. Can you imagine on your ordination day, <laughs> Bishop lays hands on Or a on plug you. for new churches. <laughs> well, that every part of the temple was important. And every part of the temple was cut so perfectly that they uh, didn't need mortar to hold it together. That was one of the wonders of the temple, that it was cut so perfectly they didn't need uh, mortar. So when you start to see it from the point of view of a Christian, you say, okay, the temple is Christ's body. Well, the body was destroyed, but what happened is it rises up again, uh, glorified. But every member of Christ's body is important, and every stone in the temple was important. So everything that comes together to build a church building today is important because it symbolizes a member of the church all assembled into their heavenly glory. That's pretty big theology. Every part of a church is assembled according to the dignity of each part and then raised to its heavenly glory. I don't think there's an architect on earth, well, maybe four or five people that that I know who might think of church architecture that way. But that's the the really important thing. You are, if we talked about the playfulness of the liturgy, the church is the playground of the liturgy. It's Mm -hmm. the place where you go and delight in uh, this playfulness of the liturgy and your own perfection is supposed to show you walking inside what heaven and earth would look like. I should put a slide in my church. I'd be playful building. 
<laughs> what were you going to say, Chris? Probably something say, way more intelligent. <laughs> from the sublime to the mundane. Uh, so on the one hand, the churches that we build now have this sort of uh, Old Testament precedent, or there's these types and foreshadowings in the Old Testament. But we don't simply build churches that look like the old, like the temple or the synagogue in the Old Testament, because they also have this forward-looking dimension too, right? Well, right. The temple was what we call in the time of shadow. So we were learning some of the types that would then be fulfilled. But the church building takes us from the heavenly future, pulls the heavenly future back into our own time. So it's the completion and the glorification of the eschaton or the, the end times when everything is glorified, pulls it back into our own time. So, you know, when you read the book of Revelation, St. John has a vision of heaven and it's described as being made of gems. And whenever you hear a gem, you say, what's a gem? Well, it's a stone. And a stone is a person. The living stones assembled become uh, the temple of the they're temple polished of Christ. Stones. Well, they're polished and they're precious, right? They're glorified, radiant, dignified, reflective, colorful, and sort of fascinating to look at. You know, people stop by the Tiffany window in New York and they just look at the sparkling gems. Who knows why they carry us into this kind of ecstatic stop where everything else stops mattering and you just look at the, you know, the sparkly things, but that we're kind of hardwired to like this radiant, glorified thing. So heaven's made of stones. Where do you see precious stones in the liturgy or things that appear to be precious stones? Well, I mean, we see uh, chalices that have stones. They're, they're usually uh, gold or, or silver. Um, but we also see stained glass windows that have that uh, image uh, that is like a gem or a stone. Uh, right. And the book of Revelation says the walls of the heavenly Jerusalem have these 12 gems on the foundation stones uh, of the walls. So the idea that the church, that the heaven is made of gems, which are people glorified and radiant. You know, we can't really make our church walls out of rubies and sapphires and diamonds, but we can make it out of red and blue and white It would glass. look like the Emerald City from Wizard of Oz, probably. <laughs> well, I think the Wizard of Oz guy completely stole the notion of the glorified city oh, from man. the scripture and sort of watered it down. Yeah, but the first the... half of that movie was in black and white, so we couldn't tell anyway. Well, well, the but Yellow Brick Road, <laughs> the, the streets of heaven are paved with gold. Well, that's right. So, oh, wow. The, you know, the, what's... What have I done? You know, the black, and white, again, <laughs> the black and white part of the movie is kind of dingy, and, you know, that's not filled with divine life. And then it turns to color and suddenly, boom, it's taken up a notch into some kind of higher level of fullness and participation. And then heaven takes it up to that fullness. And they always know where it is too. You know, the yellow brick road leads to the Emerald City. And how do they know where to go? Because they keep seeing this beautiful thing in the distance. Uh, you talked about, you know, these gems and the stones, and, and wasn't that a part of uh, the Old Testament as well? The, the priest would have the 12 stones or gems for each tribe. Is that correct? Right. So the basic logic in the temple was to anything brought into the presence of God was, was restored and glorified. And so the presence of God confers holiness. That's it, period. So you go into the presence of God, and Godness is conferred on whatever whatever goes in there, whether it's the bread or the wine sacrifices or the blood. And so the Israelites couldn't get all the Israelite, the, the high priest couldn't get all the Israelites into this little room in the temple. So he wore them vicariously as stones on this breastplate that had 12 gems with the 12 uh, scribe, inscribed the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So symbolically bringing all the tribes of Israel into the Holy of Holies. Well, guess what? And when it's all done and the eschaton comes, all of heaven is made of these people, these, these, not just the 12 tribes, but all the nations, all the tribes, all the people of the world who are glorified and, and um, brought into the presence of God for the glorification. Or they've been glorified, so they're therefore worthy to be in the presence of God. So what a church building means then, what it sacramentalizes, is most primarily the, the body of Christ. Uh, secondly, this 
heavenly, it fulfills the Old Testament uh, type of the temple and anticipates this heavenly Jerusalem. It, it realizes that. Uh, and also then it's, it symbolizes our, all of the, the living stones, the people who are in the church. Right? So it, it's, if I'm getting to, to, to the nub here, this is why it's important that a church look in a particular way, that it be uh, radiantly beautiful, that it be attractive, that it be substantial, that it be transcendent, because it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's, it's not simply a reminder, but it's something that transforms me into the reality, which it also symbolizes the body of Christ. Right. You know, that which is not perceived is not encountered. And if you can't perceive the heavenly Jerusalem, you're not going to encounter it. So the idea is you get to see what your own heavenly future might look like, and then you get to become like that. And there's so many ways that that, that happens. You know, you, I, I can't talk about architecture without talking about columns, of course. But Yeah, let's talk about columns. So Col- co- columns are not people. They are just... Uh, <laughs> wait, did I get that no, wrong? You got that wrong. Oh, sorry. What's the top of a column called? The capital. Right. And where's the, where does that word come from? Caput, head. Right. So. And then you have the pedestal, which right. is the foot. Right, because the word pass in Latin is a foot. Or the base of a column comes from the Greek word for basis, basis, which also means foot. But the word basis also means a dance. It's the liturgical dance that when um, you know, the men and women would carry the sacrifices up to the temple in ancient Greece, that was called doing the basis. It was the ritual procession of going up to the altar. So columns in a church are not just people, but they're people doing the, the sacrificial ritual uh, dance as buildings do it, right? They don't move, but they do it according to the way that buildings can do that sort of thing. You know, the, the talk of the, the columns, or I, th- I think you all call these uh, pilasters. Those sure. are the flat columns. Okay, so in the chapel here on campus, right, there's 12 of these. Mm-hmm. And in the, you're, you're talking about the ritual that in, in the rite for the dedication of a church, you know, how it comes to be a sacred place, a temple, an image of Jesus in heaven and me. Is it, we've, ta- we've mentioned this before when we talked about the altar. The building gets initiated much like a human being gets initiated, where the walls are sprinkled, uh, the, wall, the, the walls are marked in 12 spots with the sacred chrism. And in, in our chapel here on campus, it's, uh, it's with these pilasters. Uh, and then uh, there's a solemn lighting that takes place, again, just like the initiation of a human being, an adult at the Easter Vigil. And then the building um, celebrates uh, the Eucharist for the very first time. And so through these sacraments of initiation, of baptism and confirmation in the Eucharist, this stack of stones is transcended into, is transfigured, be transfigured into of course. Uh, into this supernatural temple. Right, it's assemb- like the parts are assembled. This is why we talk about assembly. When, you know, there's the gathering, which is fine, dump it in a pile. But then there's assembly, which means put everything in the right place, and then raise it to the heavenly glory. So I can't do a podcast without saying ontology again, but what's the ontological nature, or that's redundant, what's the nature of a church building? If you just say, oh, it's the skin for liturgical action, which need not look like anything, it's just the tent. Sometimes you hear people say, you know, church building, we don't need church building because we're the church. But the church building sacramentalizes the glorified mystical body and all of its members assembled and then holds it up for the world to see in a way that's delightful. If you drive down the Kennedy and you see all those domes and spires of all the great Polish churches, you say, well, there's a bunch of Christians over there. And that's one of the jobs of a church building is to indicate that God and humanity have been reconciled and they're right there living in a reconciled way. 
It's always seemed to me we need a church building because we are the true stones of the living temple. This church building is our sacramental symbol that express and fosters our own identity. And to lose that is to uh, suffer ourselves for not having it. So it's not built at the expense of the true stones, but it's built because of the true stones. It's just like you'd say... Um, you know, my heart, the, the, the heart of the faithful is the true altar of God. Therefore, we don't need an altar in the church. Well, the conclusion's wrong. It's because the heart is the altar of God that we need an altar in the church. That altar is the symbol of my own heart, just as uh, the church building is the symbol of the mystical body of Christ. Yeah, that would be thinking of it backwards, right? Well, I, I sort of think so, yeah. Right, and that, you know, the notion of how you become divinized, it's not just doing whatever until you get the spiritual vitamin pill of the Eucharist. It's doing all of the things that the liturgy involves. So saying the text, listening to the, the readings, looking at the building. And what does it show you? It shows you your own heavenly future. Hopefully it has a nice artistic program. It might show you the angels and the saints and the new heaven and the new earth. It might even show the souls in purgatory and uh, remind you to pray for them. So that's the whole participation in the, the uh, life of the liturgy. And that has a visual component as well. So it's not just all oh, rich people you know, have money or they're sophisticated or they're, the pastor's friend is an artist. Let's give them some work. It's a pre-existing reality that we try to sacramentalize so that people can encounter it and become transformed by it and cl- live in a way closer to the life of the Trinity. That's important stuff. That's not it, just it's a little stuff important. on the edge. Yeah, it's a little important. No, it's, it's, it's very important. And I think uh, in a certain sense, kind of what we were talking about in the beginning was, you know, I got the good sense that there were a lot of instructions, not just for either the church building or the temple you know, or the actual liturgy itself, but the fact that they kind of work together and that it's there's exact instructions for what it should look like and what you should do and how you should do it. Well, there are very few exact instructions for building churches, but that's why you have to know the context. So, you know, the Holy of Holies in the temple, which is this little inaccessible room, well, that's become the apse of a church, you know, the sanctuary where the altar is. It's no longer quite as inaccessible as it once was, but the altar now is the new throne, and the tabernacle is the new ark because it's the abiding presence of God in a golden box, usually uh, guarded by two angels on either side. And then the nave is the new large room. And so the priest is still the one who goes from the nave, which is earth, into heaven, which is the sanctuary, and brings the sacrifice of ourselves and the grain and wine offerings, and then brings that back, bearing the presence of Christ. So when you go to communion and you see a priest stepping, you know, standing on that first step of the sanctuary, reaching across, saying the body of Christ, he's actually a bridge between heaven and earth, just like Christ. The a pontifex. pontifex. Exactly. He's saying, I've got the heavenly stuff over here, just came off of this altar, which is Christ himself, offering himself perfectly, and now I'm handing it to you, reaching across symbolically, architecturally, from heaven to earth. And again, that's what God's doing in restoring us in the liturgy, and it's symbolized and made uh, three-dimensional in the building itself. Well, i got to tell you, my mind is efficiently blown right now, so... uh I think before we get a little deeper, which I, I have a feeling we're going to come back to this because um, I think there's a lot more that we can be di- discussing about this. But uh, we should definitely go to uh, an email from a listener. So let's do that. Hey, Lady you guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get to our email question of the week, I have a quick favor to ask of you. And that is, if you are an iTunes subscriber, could you please go to our podcast page and rate and review our podcast? It would go a long way to help us reach as many people as possible. And that's just the way that iTunes works. 
The more people that rate and review a podcast, the higher ranked it will be in the list of podcasts. So if you could do that for us, it would be great. Thank you. I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I'd like to recommend the Liturgical Institute. I have the privilege of teaching here at Mundelein Seminary in Chicago. Every Monday, I come out to teach the seminarians, and right alongside of Mundelein Seminary is the Liturgical Institute. Founded back in 2000, professors like Dennis McNamara have been teaching liturgical studies for MA students, for those seeking a licentiate or even a doctorate. And you dive into the scriptures, but not just in study, but praying together, morning and evening prayer as a community of students. At the same time, you're going into all of the liturgical documents of the church, discovering the sacred riches of the living tradition and really connecting scripture and the liturgy. I'd urge you to consider coming here to study, especially if you want like a master's degree to work for the church and at the same time, share the riches of the beauty of the mass. Thank you. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, this week, we have a question from Anonymous. And Anonymous says, is intinction allowed in the Mass? And I guess, probably before we get to the answer, I would at least like to know what intinction is. Intinction is where the sacred host is dipped into the precious blood and then uh, received by the communicant. So is this allowed? Uh, I, I've heard that it's not allowed. Right. Uh, it's part, that's partly right. Okay. It's not allowed for the communicant himself or herself to take the host and then sort of walk over to where the precious blood is being distributed and dip the host in the chalice uh, himself and then receive. That is not allowed. That's never allowed. So self-intinction is never allowed by the communicant. The priest celebrant or a con celebrant might uh, receive this way, but uh, the, the, the lay faithful never receive this way. So why is it okay for the priest to do and not for the laity to do? Yeah, so Which it, I'm sure is a question by a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, so it, it is allowed in the Diocese of the United States for the priest to distribute communion via intinction. This is, if you're interested, you can look in the general instruction of the Roman Missal at 287, and also in our own uh, uh, norms. It's called the Norms for the Distribution and Reception of Holy Communion under both kinds in the Dioceses of the United States of America. Wow, I, I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what does that say? At, that's at number uh, 49 and 50. Uh, so that permits the priest celebrant or the priest to distribute to communion via intinction where he himself uh, dips the host in the chalice and says the body and blood of Christ and then the communicant says amen and must receive communion on the tongue therefore because you wouldn't receive a, a host dipped in the precious blood in the palm of your hand. The idea is, is Eucharist uh, is a good gift. It's a good grace. Uh, I think Th St. Thomas treats this uh, etymologically charis, almost like a caritas or charity. It's a good gift, and a gift is something that is never taken, but always uh, received. And so, I mean, there's other reasons, too, for, for uh, to guard against profanation of the Eucharist or anything like that. But uh, the, the Eucharist is something that's received, and it's never taken by oneself with our own hands. We've talked about proscript, proscriptive and prescriptive uh, rules. 
the the um, general instruction gives the prescription that the priest does it, but if you want some proscription as well, it's uh, in, sacram- in Redemptionis Sacramentum, the 2004 instruction, paragraph 104, specifically says the communicant must not be permitted to entink the host in the chalice. So it's quite clear reasoning there. All right. Well, I think that is uh, an accurate answer. Let's check with our liturgy fact checkers. Yep, that's right. One of these days we're going to get the raspberry and then we're not going to know what to do. (laughs) You are wrong. Okay, so if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.